welcome to Northern Exposure, the podcast that we hope will help Canadian medical students explore their potential future careers as Canadian physicians. We're your hosts. I'm Hannah Levy. And I'm Ann Keller. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Goldfarb. Dr. Goldfarb is a cardiologist at Jewish General Hospital in Montreal and an assistant professor of cardiology at McGill University. He completed medical school, internal medicine residency, and cardiology fellowship at McGill University, followed by a master's of science in experimental medicine and the clinician investigator program at McGill. He subsequently trained in critical care at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. His clinical and research interests involve improving the quality of care and outcomes for patients with acute cardiac disease and critical illness in the cardiovascular intensive care unit. He is the director of the quality of care and safety committee in the division of cardiology at Jewish General Hospital. Dr. Goldfarb is an active member of the Canadian Cardiovascular Critical Care Society, a multidisciplinary group created to improve the quality of care of critically ill cardiovascular patients. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. This is exciting. We have divided our interview into three sections. The first is about you and your specialty. We'll then move on to a few questions about your journey and how you decided your specialty was right for you. We'll then finish with the nitty gritty details of what the day-to-day looks like in your job. Um, so just to kind of jump jump right in, given our global pandemic, clinical placements are uh, a bit sparse. And one of the things that uh, we understand they're very useful is, is job shadowing. So in light of our lack of exposure to clinical patients, can you give us an elevator pitch for your job as a cardiologist? Well, I can give you an elevator pitch for cardiology in general. And then I guess later we can talk about specifically my, my job. I have to say that cardiology is by far the most interesting specialty. I know I'm biased, but it's true. It's fast paced. It evolves very rapidly. And of all the specialties, it's the most evidence-based. There's always large, exciting new studies coming out. Uh, practicing cardiology is extremely rewarding. People are really concerned about their hearts, both those with cardiovascular disease and those that don't have disease and that you can reassure. And you can really help people and make a difference in their lives, both in the acute setting as well as in the outpatient setting. And it's a very broad special specialty with a, a lot of opportunities for, for people to find their own niche and area that interests you. And I've started broadly and I was able to kind of narrow my interest. But at the same time, most cardiologists still still are general cardiologists uh, to a certain extent. So very exciting, interesting specialty. And I, I highly recommend it for those who, who find it interesting. So given your obvious enthusiasm and passion for cardiology, um, how do you think that your personality kind of fits in with, with that specialty? Well, like I said, everyone has their own space in cardiology. So there's a lot of different personalities in the people that I work with that uh, have found their own niche from the very, very hyper to the very calm. And uh, I, I would say I'm actually a very calm person. And that helps because I deal with very critically ill patients and emergency situations when everyone is, is not panicking, but the people's heart rates go up and those who are trying to take care of the situation. So it, it really helps to stay calm and cl- keep a clear headed and survey the situation and make decisions based on what's medically right, as opposed to kind of emotional or, or uh, anxious type of decision making. And I, I don't get overwhelmed easily at work. Um, so when there's a lot going on at the same time, I'm able to focus and say what's important and do the important tasks first. So I think that helps a lot. Um, I'm also very efficient. Um, for example, I, I'm on call right now from home, but I'm on call and I'm doing this interview and uh, the, you know my kids are all around. So when I'm at work, I'm at work. When I'm at home, I'm at home. And it, it's very important to, to for me personally to be efficient because I work 
in the probably the busiest uh, acute care hospital in Quebec. And I don't potentially even Canada, I don't know, but it's very, very busy. So it helps to be very, very efficient. And I've, I don't know if I'm, I'm that way naturally or I've developed the skills, but over the course of time, it's something that's definitely helped me. Thanks so much. So there was a survey that was published in, in JAMA Cardiology in 2018, reporting the views of uh, a little over a thousand internal medicine residents about their perceptions of cardiology as a specialty. Um, and so common negative thoughts about cardiology included kind of interference with family life and, and a lack of diversity. So recognizing that this was a survey of US trainees, do you think the concerns about cardiology generalized to Canada? Well, I can't answer for Canada in general because I don't know all the numbers. I can only kind of answer for my, my experience and what I see locally. I can tell you in the McGill program, the, I think at least half the cardiology fellows uh, in terms of diversity are, are women, and many of them are from ethnic or visible minorities. And it's been like that way for the last you know several years while I've been involved in the program. Um, perhaps it has to do with it's because it's a, a major um, city with a very ethnically diverse population. So I, 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 it, to me, it appears, and, and I work also at, uh, in a center that's very ethnically diverse with, you know, a hundred spoken languages in the immediate area that we live in, so the immediate area that we work in. So there's, it's a very ethnic diverse population of patients and people working there. So from my perspective, it seems like it's a pretty diverse <laughs> um, uh, group of people, but I, I can't, like I said, I can't generalize across Canada. In terms of the second part of that, which was, uh, is there any uh, interference with family life? Um, it's it's tough, and everyone has to develop their own type of um, their own type of priorities. For me, I, I've chosen, as I said, I know how to prioritize. I when I'm I'm very time man. I have a lot of uh, effort in terms of time management and efficiency over the years. Um, and when I'm working, as I mentioned, when I'm working, I'm working. When I'm home, I'm home. And it's one of the things that you have to do. Uh, there's also a lot of diversity within cardiology. So it's not a 24-7 job all the time. Sometimes it is. When I'm on cardiac ICU, uh, which I do 14 weeks a year, which is by far the most of anyone at my center because that's my area of interest, I'm, I'm working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But at the same time, there have been ways that we've done to decrease that kind of uh, burden uh, of, during that week. For example, we don't do every call every night. Now we do every second night. So now every second night, I'm guaranteed to be home. And even when I'm on call, as I said, most of the time I'm home. And when I do need to go into the hospital, I'm, I only go in you know, maybe once every two or three or four times on call. I do get called a lot. I do get woken up a lot, but um, not, not as much as when I had young children at home. So um, there's, a, there's a balance and there may be a different balance for myself versus for a woman who has young children at home. I don't know. Um, but I can say that the vast majority of, of evenings I'm home for my family or dinner. Um, I also have a lot of uh, time when I'm doing research days or less intense rotations when I'm home early. I also have a very flexible schedule. So when I'm not doing my cardiac ICU, the other three quarters of the time, I'm able to you know, spend time with the family during the day especially now that the kids are home during the current uh, the pandemic, but uh, then I can do my work at night. So it's a very flexible type of schedule that I have. So it, yes, it does impact family life, but every single job impacts family life um, to a certain extent, because you can't be at home or you, if you're at home when you're, you, you have to be working. Um, so I, I think there's, there's ample opportunity to balance family life. If you write the, if you make the right uh, decisions for, for, for you personally, for me, 
I've, I've, I probably work more than most cardiologists, both clinically um, and, and research-wise. I work a lot of hours, but you don't have to make that decision. You can make the decision to work somewhere less. And a lot of my colleagues do do that or you know, work less during the summer when the kids are home and work a little bit more in the winter when it's cold outside and there's not as much to do. So that's a personal decision. But I would, to me, I would say, you could ask my wife this question, but to me, I would say, I don't think it interferes that much with my family life. I think it complements my family life. Our last question on this vein, and then we'll move on, is do you think that there are any other sort of stereotypes of cardiology that people have um, that we haven't discussed? And if no, that's fine. Um, and then what are your thoughts on those? So um, when I originally thought of this question, um, it's, it's very hard to answer this question. You know, I, And I've asked other people this question because as a cardiologist, it's very hard to see what the stereotypes are of, my, of myself and my colleagues. But from what I understand, People think that cardiologists all exercise, they all eat well, they live healthy lifestyles. I personally try to, it's my nature, but I can assure you that not all my colleagues do. Some are not, uh, live the healthiest lifestyles and people are surprised to find that out. Um, also, many people think that cardiologists apparently understand all the principles of exercise and sports exercise and sports physiology. I can say most cardiologists don't. It's, a, it's a, actually a particular interest, a particular niche of focus in cardiology that very, very few cardiologists focus on. We don't really learn about that much of it in medical school, exercise physiology um, to a great extent, and definitely not during residency or fel cardiology fellowship do we focus on it. I happen to know personally because I was involved with athletics for many years. So whenever patients ask me questions about exercise and exercise physiology and recommendations, it's mostly from my personal experience and not from my, my, my cardiology training. And the other thing I would say, another stereotype I think people is that, and this is probably true of all cardio, all specialists in general, is that people think that because I'm a specialist in cardiology, that I'm well-versed in all areas of general medical practice. And while I did know many of these principles um, during medical school or maybe even kind of internal medicine training, I can't keep really up to date in all fields of medicine like gynecology and psychiatry and all these other fields. So I don't know how to do a lot of these things, but people assume that I do. And, and my colleagues, I think, have all experienced that. That's a great answer. I feel like the more that we learn in medicine, the easier it is to understand how specialized you get and, and just how quick it is to fall out of date with any other area. Definitely. I mean, life moves fast. And if you're, if you're in your area, then it's, uh, very, the literature changes. So if you don't follow it, the, the textbook is very quickly outdated. But that's what keeps it interesting. Uh, so moving on to our second part. So we're really interested in, in the story of how you got to where you are. So for example, your education, but also things like the different paths that you considered um, and how you picked the choices that kind of got to where you currently are. Yeah, it's, it's actually very funny. If you told me about uh, 20 years ago and asked me where I would be right now, I probably would not have given you this answer. So when um, I was in the University of Toronto and I took the most general science degree that I could find, which was a major in life sciences, which basically means you can take a few science courses in a few different areas and you don't have to choose really anything. It was the most broad thing that I could do. And I was sitting in a class of a thousand people or maybe more, 1200 in a huge convocation hall at the University of Toronto. And I remember thinking I'm the only one in my class in this whole group that does not want to go into medical school. I have no interest for medicine. And um, the next, and I, <laughs> I have to say the first year I didn't do so well in uh, in undergraduate degree, probably because I was a little bit aimless. I didn't really know what I wanted. Um, but in the second year, 
I kind of knew what I didn't want. I didn't kind of want to do laboratory research. Um, that wasn't something that was interesting to me. Uh, I didn't want to do some of those other uh, areas in, in science, but I kind of found medicine more and more interesting. And then I really came focused in the second year. I said, this is what I want to do. So then obviously all my focus became um, getting into medical school. Then I got into medical school and I had no idea what kind of specialty I wanted really until late in medical school. So I said, let me do the most broad thing that I can think of, which was internal medicine. And internal medicine is actually, as you know, it's a, it encompasses many different specialties of medicine. So it's incredibly broad. And then when I was finishing the end of medicine, you know, I, I really liked everything that I did, not necessarily to do as a the as a, as a rest of my life, but I really liked everything I did. And someone told me once good advice, which was, um, in every specialty, there's going to be 80% of the thing that you do is the same. For example, in cardiovascular disease, it's coronary disease, right? It's cardiology. 80% of the time I'm dealing with coronary disease. Now, the other 20% of the time, I'm dealing with a lot of interesting things as well. And even within that 80%, there's a lot of interesting and different things within that 80%. But you really have to enjoy coronary disease. Um, and I was I was actually had to choose between, interestingly enough, infectious disease, endocrinology, cardiology, and, and ICU. And they're really kind of polar ends of the spectrum in terms of personalities, like endocrinology is not such long hours, it's very calm, but I couldn't personally see myself doing diabetes 80% of the time. And infectious disease, I couldn't see myself doing like cellulitis and pneumonia 80% of the time. And uh, so I, I ended up choosing cardiology. And once I was in cardiology, you know, I had the same thing. Like I, actually cardiology is, everyone thinks it's very specific, but it's actually very, very broad. And you can choose many things. You can choose echo, you can choose cath, you can choose nucle uh, cardiac imaging, you can choose uh, many different areas. And and it took me really like, like a few years to figure out. And I remember meeting with my program director in the middle of my second year of cardio cardiology fellowship, which is well into my, fel my residency already. And she, she said, you know, you'd be really excellent as a, in cardiac ICU as a specialty. And I started laughing. And she said, why are you laughing? I said, that's not even a specialty. And and I left that meeting and thinking like, maybe I should look into it. And I looked into it and it wasn't really actually a real specialty at that time, but it was a kind of a growing thing that was growing. And the more I learned about cardiac ICU, it, it, it merged my interest in ICU, which I was interested in critical care and cardiology. And it was a field that no one locally did. And it was a field that less than 10, 15 people across Canada do and less than you know, 100 people across the U.S. do. And it was a growing field. So I kind of found mentors in that field and went towards that field. And that's why I did my fellowship training in critical care and came back and worked in critical care cardiology and kind of in developing that field. So my, my, I have to say, looking back at my career, it actually surprised me. And I didn't really choose anything. I think the areas where I was in, most interested in kind of chose me. Um, your story kind of talks about you. So you started at U of T, um, you're in Montreal now, your fellowship was in California. Um, did any, did sort of geography play a role in any of your decisions? Were there any factors outside of kind of the, um, the content um, and the professional play into uh, the decisions you made? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very few people go from Toronto to Montreal. I did, as most people can surmise, because my wife is from Montreal. Um, most people go the other way, from Montreal to Toronto. I went into an area with uh, where I speak French half the time, and I didn't know French very well going here, so I had to learn. Um, but uh, I'm very happy in, in Montreal. My decision to go to fellowship in California was based on um, there's only two programs in the United States that offered the program that I wanted. One was in Boston and one was in California. 
and uh, the weather was much better in California. No, I'm joking. That was only a very small part of the reason. The large reason it was at Cedar Sinai where I did my fellowship was a very innovative program, um, which was I was the first person in that program um, that, that that started. Um, and but I have to say, you know, training in the West Coast it's completely different than training in the East Coast, and obviously the weather in California and all the things to do made the fellowship and, and Cedar Sinai is in the middle of Beverly Hills and it's the hospital to the stars. So it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience. Um, and I would highly recommend people to get out of their comfort bubble because my comfort bubble was Montreal, McGill, Toronto, kind of the big cities in Canada and going to uh, America was uh, American general, the American healthcare system and going to California, going to a, a major nonprofit hospital, which is, you know, groundbreaking and cutting edge in cardiology. My, my advice is geography is very important. Get out of where you are, especially if you're going to do more advanced training and bring that specialty back to where, where you want to practice. So I know you're uh, interested in research and I'm, I'm curious, kind of, has that been uh, an interest since kind of forever or was there a, a time when you kind of realized that you wanted research to be a component of your career? Well, I was uh, really interested in creative writing growing up. I was always writing stories, non-fiction uh, stories. Um, and then when the drive to get into medical school and uh, and residency and all these, you kind of lose that time to write. It's more reading, learning, and you don't have time to write. And uh, I found the first time, I, the, the, re the real truth is the first time I did uh, research was because I wanted it on my resume, because I wanted to have that on my resume. So I just, you know, found someone doing research and I tagged along on their project. And actually, and it was just really just like going through charts and like taking data out and writing it down. And the process wasn't so interesting, but the outcome was very interesting. The person I did the research for presented at a conference, and I found it very interesting. So, and I didn't do another project for another few years. And then in, in, in residency medicine, I did another similar type of project where I was the primary person on the project, but it was a very simple project based on an important clinical question that I saw while, while I was doing my training. And that was another project. And then another three, three four years later, another interesting case came up. For example, I had a, it was a drink cardiology, um, so I'd only done two research projects in like six years at this point. And then an interesting case came in cardiology where someone came in with a cardiac arrest, a young, young man in the early 20s from uh, energy drink consumption. And then I said, I asked the clinical question, how often does this happen? And what are the consequences clinically of energy drink consumption? And so I followed that clinical question and I was able to publish that paper. And that really, that particular paper really sparked my interest. And then I said, this is really fun. This I'm learning a lot. And so then I, I kept doing um, new and new projects, adding them. So I started doing first uh, from case reports, then case series, then retrospective reviews. Now I'm doing prospective stuff, going into randomized controlled trials. So it, it was kind of a very gradual process. But I, to me personally, I just really enjoy it. And it, now looking back at it, I realized the scientific writing, which is completely different than creative writing, in fact, I've had to learn to write completely different, is really an outlet for me to uh, kind of resume my passion for writing, albeit in a, a different form and fashion than I was doing before. That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever um, thought of the branch between just a generally enjoying to write creatively and, and the scientific aspect, but I can definitely see that now. Thanks. Yeah, it's not like creative writing is making things up. Scientific <laughs> writing, hopefully you're not making things up, but it, it allows you to express words and choose the right words in the right place. And in that aspect, it is creative and you learn to write in a specific interest, you know, technical way, which to me is, can be very creative. My next question is, is there anything you wish you had known before making your decision or 
any advice you have for students making their decision of which specialty to choose? It's a hard, it's a hard question. I think the most important thing is really just is find find your passion. If you have uh, if you have a passion for something and you really care about it and you really find it interesting, it will make your life easy. It'll make your choices easy. You'll want to do whatever you want to do. You want to do research. You want to shadow people. You want to you want to uh, do extra work in that. You want to help people with those problems. It's if you have a passion for it, then it's going to be really like really easy to make that decision. So, you know, in order to find a passion, you have to have a lot of experiences. You mentioned how difficult shadowing is, and I think one of the one of the greatest things that I did, and uh, I I promise I wouldn't mention this during the interview, but I'm going to mention it is that when I was training, I would the medical student. I just went to the emergency room. And at that time, the emergency room in my institution was just a, you know, a big circle filled with people. It was a little bit wild. Now it's obviously a little bit more spaced out with much better infectious control protocols. But it was a big, a big emergency room. Everyone in it was a circle. And I would go to the unit in the middle, get a list of patients, see what they were in for. One was in for abdominal pain. One was in for chest pain. One was in for like um, fever. One was for bleeding, whatever. And I would just know their chief complaint. And I would go with no other information to that patient and talk to them. And and I did this, you know, whenever I had to spare half an hour, hour or two in the hospital. And it really gave me a passion for, for internal medicine, I guess. That's why I guess I like internal medicine, because it was a lot of different kind of problems like that. But my point is, is you you have to have a lot of different experiences. When you have those different experiences, whether it's research or meeting patients or in whatever fields, you're going to find something that you're passionate about. And then don't think about lifestyle at that point, because I think lifestyle, any specialty, there's room for lifestyle. You can work as much or as little in that specialty. You can arrange your schedule how you want to, the vast majority of places you practice. But if you if you have a passion for it, you'll make it work wherever you go, and it'll, it'll make your, your life worth living and make every day enjoyable. That's a very encouraging sentiment. Um, moving into our last section, uh, which is just the nitty gritty details about what your or job looks like. Um, and you've alluded to some of it so far, but but it would be great to hear a bit more depth. Um, so just kind of a prompting question. Some people say there's no such thing as a typical day or week in, in their job, but generally what does typical look like in your job prior to COVID? Yeah, so exactly this prior to COVID and, and during COVID. So my, my schedule, there, it is true, there is no such thing as a typical day or week for me. Um, I, but I really split into two. There's one I'm in the cardiac ICU and I'm not in the cardiac ICU for me personally. Um, this would, I guess, be the same for anyone who's in doing critical care would also have a similar experience um, or in a, in a medical ward for a week at a time. So when I'm in the, I'm in the ward or in the ICU, um, a typical day is uh, starting at 7.30 in the morning, um, around signing with a team, uh, teach that the sign-ins for 20 minutes, half an hour, then teach teach the residents and the students for 30, 45 minutes. That's about 8.45. Then round um, in the ICU and the ward in the morning. That takes about time to 12 o'clock. Then the afternoon, um, the residents and med students see, cons see admissions, and I review it with them and do some bedside exams and some more teaching. Uh, that, that usually takes around three or four o'clock. At four o'clock, we usually meet to uh, to review images like echoes and caths, and then sign outs at 4.30, 4.30 or five for about half an hour, 45 minutes. When I'm on call, after that, I'm on call for home. If obviously, if there's sick patients, um, I'm getting I'm called frequently. I go in often, once every two or three or four times I'm on call, like a, a home call, I'll go in, but I'm frequently called to review consults. and. Um, that's a typical day when I'm in cardiac ICU. Obviously, there's emergencies. There's things that happen that mess that not mess up, but that alter that schedule. 
And so I have never have an idea of what my day is going to be like when I go into work, which personally I don't find doesn't cause anxiety to me, but many people might find anxious. I never know what my day is going to be like. My day might be completely calm. My day might be busy. The one thing I would add is during that time, whenever I have a spare moment, I'll, I'll do I'll do research or whatever, often in the afternoon or return phone calls to patients who have urgent questions or concerns um, and do paperwork for one or two hours in the afternoon. Uh, when I'm not in cardiac ICU, my schedule is a variety of things. I do nuclear stress tests, outpatient clinics, consults. Um, I have research days where I do research for the whole day, although those are a few and far between. It's usually a half day here, or I usually have to sacrifice those days and do research at night. Uh, if, for example, I'll, I'll cover colleagues that need help, you know, cover a clinical shift. And now during COVID, I'm doing more and more telemedicine. Um, and those days are really just uh, much, much lighter. They're not as intense um, than the cardiac ICU. And those ones are, are usually more uh, scheduled and le less emergencies uh, occur during the day. So this is also probably going to be a, a hard one to answer. Um, but again, kind of one of the really hard things is trying to understand the, the specifics of what it looks like. So if you had, had to sort of break down a again, a typical week into percentages of, you know, with and without patients, charting research consults, what would you, how would you kind of uh, say that your breakdown looks? I mean, the overall breakdown um, would probably be uh, about 70, 60% clinical, 20% research and 20% um, administrative. Um, but uh, that, that varies from week to week. And I say 20% research, but it's probably much more than that if you include kind of evenings and weekends where I do research. And then the weeks I'm doing, not doing cardiac ICU, it's, it's roughly about 40 to 50% research. Um, that's probably the breakdown that, uh, that, I would, that I do. And, and that's right now, it, it changes based on my administrative responsibilities and my clinical responsibilities. And as I said, day to day and week to week, there's some days it's 100% research, there's some days it's 100% clinical, and then there's a mix between the two. So you've certainly given us a, a bit of a understanding of your secret of being very efficient and multitasking, but do you find it difficult balancing clinical duties with research? Uh, since I have some protected, some protected research time, the answer that helps. Um, and as I mentioned, I also do, so, whenever I have a spare moment, I'll do research. Research is longitudinal. It's not something that you can sit down and do like, 10, 10 days in a row and get out a research paper. You have to, you know, for example, send send stuff to ethics for review, and that may take two weeks to come back. And then you have to, uh, you might send a paper to a journal, and then they send it back for comments, and then you have to make comments and send it back. So the key is to do, I, I try to do, I try to maximize every moment for research. So if I have 15 minutes, I'll spend 15 minutes answering emails, sending out things, doing small revisions, sending it back. If I have two hours, I'll do something that takes two hours. So I, I'm able to maximize the kind of the spare time that I have. I'll eat lunch while I'm, while I'm doing research, even if it's the middle of a clinical day. So the, the answer it is, it is, can be very challenging to balance. You have to be very time efficient to do everything. You don't have to do everything. You can choose to do less research or more clinical or whatever based on, on your interest. But um, to me, like I said, when I'm finishing, when I'm, when I'm finding extra time to do research, I try to do it and not take away from, from my clinical time. I try not to take away from my family time by doing it when it wouldn't kind of impact on either of those. So there's, there's always opportunities. It just it depends on what you prioritize. So research is a lifestyle. <laughs> I guess so. Um, 
so in terms of um, sort of a little bit back to your typical work, maybe, um, I guess all of it is, what is an aspect of your job that makes you most excited to go to work most days? Um, personally, I like I love working in the academic medical center. It's a constant stimulation with peers. I'm constantly colleagues meeting them in the hallway, asking me questions. I ask them questions. Uh, we bounce ideas off for each other, both clinical and research. I have a patient I don't know how to manage, or um, I, I need someone who's a specialist in a subspecialty or sub-subspecialty of cardiology. They're on the same hallway as me. I knock at their door. I call them. I email them. That's That, to me, that's the most interesting and exciting aspect of working in academic medicine, lunchtime rounds, in person, or uh, now via via tele via. Uh, computer, um, teaching residents and students, both when I'm doing cardiac ICU or stress tests or in clinics, um, they're, they're, they're passionate, they're learning, they're, they, uh, and it's really fun um, working with them. And as well as the whole clinical staff environment, when you work in one place for, for a little bit of time, you start becoming you know friendly with the nurses, with the st other staff members, um, and um, the doctors and other specialties, and it really creates a very positive environment. I don't believe personally that I would I wouldn't last very long in a community center. I have worked in community centers, and um, they're to me personally they don't provide kind of longitudinal um, mental stimulation that I think you get when you're in an academic center. So for my personal practice, it's it's really been great. Other people might have a different experience, but that's what gets me up to work. I, I don't have a, I don't have a set routine. It changes all the time, and I'm in an environment that's uh, constantly intellectually stimulation. Sounds great. Um, this one's kind of a broad question, um, but has there been a specific clinical encounter or experience in your field that has been particularly poignant? I can't say a specific encounter. I can say there have been many intense experiences. Also, it's, it's often very hard to reflect because you just have to keep going. For example, you have an intense situation with a patient and then you just have to take care of the next patient. So uh, there's not too much time to self-reflect. One one thing that I did, which for someone who's interested in, this goes back to my creative writing interest, um, was I created you know a log of interesting patient encounters that I had. That then when I had some free time uh, available, I guess after finishing writing one of the many exams that we all write, uh, I sat down and kind of wrote wrote a book about, and it was a fictionalized book based on my experiences. And now going back and looking at that, it's kind of I guess that's a self-reflection activity about the uh, interesting experience that I had. And so I see that I have had a lot of interesting experiences, but I, I can't particularly point to one of them. There's so many. I deal with, as I said, you know, acute, acute and critical patients who often have, um, who, you know, who often die or, or you know, you have to do a very advanced therapies to them to, to, to save them. And sometimes they live and sometimes they don't. I deal with family members, you know, telling them, you know, good and bad news about their family members. So it can be a very intense uh, situation, but after you deal with one situation, you move on to the next. So it's, I, I can't think of any particular situations that have marked me, but I think it's kind of a, as a whole, many different particular situations and experiences that I had that have, that have shaped who I am. And I think, I think every doctor goes to that same journey, same experiences. That leads perfectly to my next question, uh, which is, was there a moment at some point in your career when you thought sort of, aha, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing? Or has it been more of a general sense of satisfaction throughout your career? 
I would say a, I would say it's a general sense of satisfaction over my career. As I mentioned, I really enjoyed doing every uh, rotation that I did, whether it was psychiatry or obstetrics, gynecology, or endocrinology, or whatever. I family doc, family medicine. I really enjoyed that during my training, and I think they they made me a better doctor. But and as I mentioned, I kept choosing like the most general specialties that I could think of. But really, when I was in cardiology fellowship, I knew I made the right choice. I really enjoyed leading the the consult the cardio consult teams. I try to act my best as a de facto staff. Um, I try to make the cardio staff feel like they weren't even needed, but not in a bad way, but in a way that, um, you know, they felt like they could be comfortable with me and that I would report to them if I didn't know something. Um, and, uh, and, and leading especially the cardiac ICU teams when I was a, as, a, as a fellow. And that's really when I, I found my passion. That's really when I, I knew that I was 100% sure that I made the right choice. I mean, I was, there was never a doubt, but at that point, I, I, that was really, uh, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing moment, I guess. So given that the clinical exposure is currently limited for students, um, what are some things about your specialty or, or really actually job um, that we wouldn't see on paper if we were trying to read about what a cardiologist specifically looking at cardiac intensive care does? I think the, I think most people don't realize about cardiology and, and even cardiac ICU is it's how important is the patient's history. Often just from listening listening to the patient um, during that first time when they're expressing to you what you know when they come into the room or when you come into the room and you're you're seeing the patient you're listening to their story. Usually within the first thirty seconds, uh, you can figure out kind of the area the way that you're you're heading to the patient as well as kind of learn to size up a patient and and understand. Um, how how they're expressing themselves? Are they able? Someone's able to express a history? I think someone's not able to express a history. Will you be able to get the details that you need from them, maybe a history or not? Or you're gonna have to get ancillary information from family members, from medical charts, or so on. So I think that's something that you absolutely have to to experience and do in person. You can't from a textbook kind of understand how to take that history and, and make it make assessments of patients. Um, Another, another area of cardiology that I think that I deal with frequently that most people don't realize is there's a lot of people who don't have cardiovascular disease that I treat. Um, I like to say to patients, you know, there's two types of problems that people see me for. One is problems of the heart that then impact their body, such as, you know, heart attacks or arrhythmias um, or heart failure. But also people have, have other symptoms, be it emotional, for example, that then manifest in their heart. The heart is the kind of the uh, the conduit of their emotions. So they have palpitations, chest discomfort, um, uh, shortness of breath, but it's really not cardiac in origin. So one of the th great things about being with people, and you can't really get this from a textbook, is a large percentage of, my uh, of the patients that I see, I'm really helping them with kind of like mood or emotional or psychological issues. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I'm able to reassure them that there's you know, often nothing objectively wrong with them and then kind of steer them into places where they can get assistance. So that's really something that you, you, have, to, you have to be with the patients to, to experience. And uh, the last thing I would think is you really need to train your ear to hear murmurs. So you can, you can listen to all the murmurs you want on CDs and the internet. Um, but uh, unless you're actually with a patient, that's really when you, you appreciate the murmurs. So. Or, or bedside echo these days. So the, you need, these are things you need to be, uh, be, be at the bedside to do, not just, uh, not just reading a textbook. Thank you for that. Um, I have at least one colleague who I know is gonna eat that up and now know exactly where to focus his energies. 
So thinking a bit about research again, is there a research project that you worked on or a publication, if you want to be more specific, that you were um, most excited about or most proud of or, or most passionate about that really stuck out to you? Yeah, so when I first started, I was kind of the way I would describe it as uh, shooting shooting darts like blindly, like I was just taking whatever clinical question was interesting, I would just focus on um, and do that project. So if it was on energy drinks, I would do energy drinks and cardiovascular disease. If it was on uh, Fonda Paranox or blood thinners, I would do that. So different areas, whatever I found. And I think there was something that was okay, that's okay with that approach as well, because I learned about the process of research. But now that I've become more focused, um, I've really focused on two particular areas, one of which is quality of care. And there's actually very little done in the research field about this. So I've, I've done a one, stu one study where I looked at, for the cardiac ICU, what are some measures of quality of care? And that was, I did a systematic review of that, and I, and I surveyed experts from across Canada, North America and Europe, and I got their opinions on it. And that was a really exciting paper for me because that paper then led me to other opportunities um, in the professional societies that I'm working with. So that was something that I, I, I was passionate about, I found on my own, and then I kind of found this niche question that, that I thought needed to be answered. And I'm, and I'm clinically and administratively at my hospital involved with quality of care. So that was super interesting. The other area which I'm even more involved with is, is early mobilization. So early mobilization is a technique in which patients, as soon as they're hemodynamically stable, you start to mobilize them. Um, it means either getting them up, walking, or if they can't, getting them, you know, doing certain movement activities. And it's actually very surprising that the vast majority of cardiac ICUs don't have any protocols in place. Um, it's become much more of accepted practice in medical ICUs, but the patients are very different. The cardiac ICU patients are more at risk for arrhythmia. They just had uh, often had heart attacks and they just revascularized. So people and the 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 the, the way that people tend to have practiced traditionally and historically in cardiology was um, you have the heart is broken, you must rest it in bed. And that was the like the way the arm is fractured, you must you know you must cast it. The, there that was the way that it was. It was uh, done for many, many years in cardiology, and the standard of care was, for example, after heart attack, was like lie in bed with the door the door closed and lights off for for like a week, and no walking for six weeks, and and so that was a bit, so it's really taken a long time to change the mindset. So I've embarked on a whole series of projects uh, looking at various facets of early mobilization, and this really stemmed from my critical care fellowship at Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles, where they were doing this in the the in the, car, the critical care unit there. And I said, why don't we bring this to the cardiac ICU? So I did that study there retrospectively. And then I brought, I, I brought it back to our hospitals in Montreal and a few centers around Canada are doing the program that we created at our center. And I've done a whole bunch of research projects on early mobilization. I think uh, I would say 10 to 12 at this point of all different kinds of aspects, retrospective, prospective, putting accelerometers on patients. So it's not, there's not one specific project, but it's a whole bunch of uh, projects together that have, that have really uh, been super interesting for me. And we see the difference. For example, my last uh, study on early mobilization in patients with acute cardiovascular disease showed that um, patients were less likely to be discharged to a rehabilitation uh, facility, as well as less likely to die in the hospital. 
So that was done retrospectively, and now we're, do, we're prospectively validating that at our center as well as other centers to see if there was if that's a true um, result. So this is something that could make a, a you know a major clinical difference in patients' lives, especially because it's adopted as standard of care beyond our center or the centers that are doing it now, um, you know, to in, in uh, North America or even worldwide. So that's that the area I'm really focused and most proud and excited and passionate about. That is so cool. I guess our our last question. Do you have any final words of wisdom or advice you have for students considering a career like yours? Definitely do what you're passionate about. You don't have to do exactly what I'm doing, but and, and most of the things that I'm doing ended up happening kind of by chance because I ended up becoming passionate about it. So do, do what you're passionate about. Um, the second is if you're a student, a medical student, this is your time to learn. Um, now, when I go back and I do some basic learning, because as this things change and sometimes you have to go back and learn topics as well as new topics develop, it's much harder to learn now. Um, this is your chance to learn, really chance to build a solid foundation of basic understanding of principles, which will change, which will all be proved wrong, you know, in five, 10 years, but that doesn't matter. You can, when you have this solid foundation understanding, when things change, it's a lot easier for you to adapt and to understand that new principle. So take advantage of it and, and learn, appreciate the learning process. Um, I would say also enjoy every rotation, regardless of the specialty, um, because it will ultimately help you a better, a better physician. And it's really cool to deliver babies um, and do all these certain interventions that you're never going to do again in your life if that's not the area that you, you know you're specialized in. And you'll always have you'll always remember those experiences. So that's definitely good. If you want to go into cardiology, you definitely have to like coronary disease. But uh, cardiology is much more than coronary disease. There are cardiologists that never deal with coronary disease. For example, people go into electrophysiology are specialized in the arrhythmias of the heart. Um, and they, they never deal with coronary disease. So mo the vast majority of cardiologists will deal with mostly coronary disease, but we also deal with heart failure and other areas and other, other areas. So you have to really like what's the meat of the specialty that you're going to deal with. And the last thing that I kind of alluded to before, which is really important, is really find mentors. Find people that have been where, have been where you want to go or you think you want to go who can help you. Mentors really open doors. Um, medicine right now is very, especially academic medicine, is very collaborative. Before it used to be kind of like everyone scrambling to the top of the mountain and pushing everyone down. Now it's really not. Anytime you have a research project, for example, it needs to be collaboration amongst people. Um, when you try to get clinical projects off the ground, they have to be collaborations with people. So find people you can collaborate with. Mentors will help you because they'll help open doors for you that otherwise wouldn't have been available. People also find like kind of networks amongst close colleagues that are interested, like interest groups. And if you're interested in something that's very narrow interest group, you may have to go outside your institution to find people. And that's where it's great to, you know, go to uh, conferences, national conferences and meet people when once they're held again live uh, um, post-COVID. But uh, find find mentors, find colleagues that are interested in what you're doing and then and, and, and work with them. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Dr. Goldfarb. This has been really interesting and certainly insightful. So again, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a pleasure. We are both medical students and my master's Michael Chippy Group School of Medicine, but this podcast is in no way affiliated with the school or program, and all views expressed are ours alone. Included music is The Strip by Mila from the Free Music Archive, utilized under the Creative Commons Share Like License. Thank you.